Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. One of the biggest burning questions around Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the question of how Russia's dark money has infected European politics, even in some cases increasing support for Russia's actions. To help us to get to the bottom of this fascinating issue, I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Campbell, a financial investigator and journalist. Ian, welcome. Hi. Ian, this is a very big subject, and it's a complicated one, uh, and there's a limit to what we can cover in a relatively short podcast. But of course, there's also a limit to what we can cover because the people involved with this are famously litigious. But let's try and set out the problem from the outset. For many years now, Russia has been interfering in Western politics, using its money, sometimes directly from the Russian state, sometimes via business proxies of the Russian state. And he's been doing that to try to affect Western politics in ways that are helpful to Russia. How how would you uh, describe that activity as it stands today in 2022? Well, it's um, as you say, it's been going on for two decades, practically, um, in various countries around Europe. Um, it's become a very pernicious problem and a very difficult one for the West uh, in general to, to deal with. The Russians have very successfully been able to ingratiate themselves with the elites of various countries, including the UK and uh, unwinding the relationships which were built up over that period of time and the integration of Russian money uh, and Russian influence within Western societies will undoubtedly take take many years. And um, I guess the question which is increasingly being asked is how much influence have the Russians been able to buy with this money? Yeah. So let's try and look at some practical case studies. One of the most obvious ones is possibly Hungary, where... In direct relation to the war in Ukraine, the Hungarian government has been basically supportive of Putin, even though Hungary is a member of NATO, it's a member of the EU, and ultimately Hungary appears threatened by Russia's actions, not least by the uh, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees who have now entered that country. So uh, what has Hungary done? Explain to our listeners sort of how that money has affected Hungarian politics. Looking at the origins of Orban's power base, he, before he became Prime Minister of Hungary, 
had directly taken money and Russian funding uh, from some very dubious Russian sources. You know, there are allegations that he uh, was, was in league effectively with Russian organized crime, which had set up in Budapest in the late 90s. And with the growth of his Fidesz organization, um, you see an awful lot of online activity sponsored by Russia and using Russia, uh, Russian personnel, increase the popularity or increase the reach of various messages that his organization was putting out. Yeah. And you see how once he's come to power, he has taken a very hard line on um, independent media within Hungary. He's introduced some very draconian legislation, ruling back the liberal state, which of course is is one of the bugbears of current Russian political operations. The, you know, Putin has been quite vehement in describing the uh, growth of liberalism within the West as one of the uh, sort of existential enemies of the Russian uh, of the Russian people. Yeah, and you've yeah. seen that agenda being played out by Orbán. Uh, Orbán is now being held up as something of a sort of shining light and an example amongst right wing circles. You see people like Tucker Carlson on Fox News praising him. Uh, you see the CPAC conference, which is uh, going to be held uh, for the uh, American right-wingers in Budapest next week. Um, and really, Orban, I guess, was probably the first uh, success that the Russians had in terms of electing a, uh, an out-and-out pro-Russian leader in a Western EU member state. Indeed. And of course, uh, you know, there's been specific things where, for example, Orban is not letting weapons pass through Hungary that are uh, destined for for the Ukrainian forces to enable them to defend their country. Yes, yes. I mean, in practical terms, uh, Orban is doing what he can to sort of slow down the flow of weapons to Ukraine, and he's also um, using his influence within the EU to try and mitigate some of the uh, uh, sanctions or some of the more extreme calls for sanctions that have been issued by other European leaders. And uh, you know, tr- trying to trying to put forward proposals for negotiations or a negotiated peace, which would be very much on Russia's terms. Yeah, there are other case studies across Europe. Uh, one that's very interesting, which is just uh, getting a bit of publicity at the moment, is is Catalonia, and this is an example of how Russian money interferes in the politics of a country to destabilize that country. In th- in this case, we're talking about Spain. So, what happened there? Well. I mean, it's not just in Spain. I think you can look at various uh, independence movements um, throughout Europe, uh, whether it's Legia Nord in Italy, whether it's the uh, Catalonian independence movement led by Carl Puigdemont, or even whether it's the um, SNP, perhaps, in, in the UK. You know, this, this, this is seen as a key way of weakening those states by the Russians because yeah. it distracts them, creates internal opposition, it creates division within those countries. And that's very much part of the um, Russian sort of doctrine so in Spain, you know, they saw an opportunity to create divisions within Spain itself and to uh, support the Catalonian independence movement. Now, irrespective of whether or not your views are that the you know Catalonia should become an independent country or or not, obviously it has its distinct culture and language and you know differences with uh, Castilian Spain. Yeah. But what the Russians did is they saw that as an opportunity to be able to exploit. So. Uh, Puigdemont, um, who I think is currently in exile from Spain, effectively, uh, and some of his key advisors uh, met with former uh, FSB or KGB agent um, who promised huge amounts of uh, Bitcoin and even the offer of, sort of 10,000 Russian troops to come and help establish uh, Catalonian independence if the Catalonian 
uh, regional government declared independence unilaterally. Um, so these, these outrageous promises were made. Uh, there's also evidence that um, Russian bots, uh, the Internet Research Agency and organizations such as that, were very active in promoting uh, the cause of Catalonian independence online. And really, this was a, an attempt by Russia to, to create division within Spain and to, to, to weaken a key uh, European and NATO state. You mentioned Scotland there. Of course, Alex Salmond has appeared on, on RT, the, the, the Russian um, sort of propaganda TV channel. Are there other case studies of, of Russian support to Scottish independence movement? Or is, is, that, is that a rather different um, example? Well, no. I mean, I think I think you can look at um, some of the analysis which has been done on the uh, bots which uh, were active on on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, and so forth around the time of the Scottish referendum, and you can see a direct line between yeah. those and uh, the, the the same accounts would then go on to support Brexit, or they would then go on to support other um, causes which were being given a helping hand, let's say, by by Russia. Um, Certainly, Alex Salmond, yes, had his RT Today uh, show. Uh, other figures, I guess, traditionally from the left, you know, such as uh, George Galloway, you know, have also sort of put forward, let's say, you know, I, I guess pro-Russian views. Um, and, you know, a lot of these figures earn money through appearances on uh, Russian state-funded media, whether that's Sputnik or Russia Today and so forth. Um, and certainly campaigns such as Mogmentum and Momentum and the campaign against alternative voting back in the Cameron days and the referendum for independence for Scotland, I guess were kind of early iterations of what we saw in the Brexit campaign, where we saw an awful lot of activity on the social media front originating from Russia. Yeah. So we've we've come to Brexit. Um, a lot of people have uh, very strong views about this. For those of us who didn't like Brexit, it would be easy to say, well, this was just a big Russian operation against the UK. But is that true? Is that real? Um, I think there are many open questions about what happened with Brexit. There have been some investigations, some reports, um, which have trickled out over the uh, subsequent years, but no real earnest uh, investigations, I would say. I think the NCA didn't want to investigate questions around the funding of the uh, Leave campaigns, whether that's Aaron Banks's Leave EU or Matthew Elliott's Leave campaign, um, both of which have been found to have broken electoral law uh, in terms of their terms of their funding. I think there are questions about extraordinarily generous backing, and I think there are questions about what the uh, impact and effect of um, social media campaigns were on the uh, on the uh, result. But I think it's more pernicious than that. I think it's a very complex um, array of fairly uh, diverse people who who uh, supported Brexit. So to a portion. Uh, you know, it was all down to Russia or it was all down to Russian money or it was all down to Russian bots, I think would be somewhat simplistic. But nevertheless, all of these operations sort of pulled in the same direction. But really, it was a sort of culmination, I think, of about 15 years of cultivating various people within the British establishment. Um, I think the Russians uh, used their influence to try and um, um, raise the issue as frequently as, as possible into the uh, uh, sort of forefront of, of, of everyone's minds um, to campaign yeah. firstly for the refer for a referendum on the issue and then secondly when the referendum campaign had been um, undertaken 
to uh, try and ensure that Britain did leave the uh, European Union. Um, the Russians view the European Union and indeed European integration in general as an existential threat. So uh, a, a group yeah. like NATO or the European Union, where you have uh, a number of cooperating nations who are able to sort of stand up to a large power like Russia, is something that they, they have wanted to weaken and, if possible, destroy for a very, very long time. Yeah, OK. So I'm sort of on a bound to push a bit on, on this. It's pretty obvious to... To see that, that, you know, NATO particularly, I mean, you know, look, look at the, what Russia's mm. doing in Ukraine. So we, we don't have to go very far to see Russian paranoia about NATO and to a certain extent equally about the EU, which although it's not ostensibly a security organisation, it definitely increases the security and power of its members. And therefore, you can see why Russia would be threatened by it. But uh, you said that um, over a, a prolonged period, uh, Russia has been promoting the idea of Brexit. Can, can you give us some examples of what that looks like? Well, you see where Russian cash has gone, um, whether that's been donated by individuals uh, or more uh, actively promoted by organisations like the, uh, the, the the Russian embassy. Uh, you know, they, they promoted things like the Westminster Russian Forum, the Conservative Friends of Russia, they funded various think tanks based on Tufton Street and other such organizations. And the point of these organizations, I, I guess, is to control or to start to, to manage the information space. Um, so you'd start seeing reports being put forward about the benefits of Brexit, which has allowed Russia, as an example, to, to be able to start shaping and ultimately then dominating uh, that that information space, which, as I say, is a is a, is a yeah. key domain in their military doctrine these days. The other part of this story is, of course, the role of Russian money directly into British politics, and it seems particularly into the Tory Party. Uh, mm. What's going on there? Um, lots of people have heard about characters such as um, Lubov Chernukin. This is this woman who loves to pay huge sums of money for the dubious privilege of playing tennis with Boris Johnson or having dinner with Gavin Williamson, um, something you might choose to pay money not to do. Um, again, uh, what is the status of this money? Because the Tory party says, well, these are British citizens. We've done thorough due diligence on this money. Uh, basically, nothing to see here. Yeah, I mean, there's a large number of Russian oligarchs who have been able to naturalize as British citizens, either through the uh, uh, investment visa program or through having uh, you know, been in the UK for a considerable number of years. And under the rules of um, the Electoral Commission, as UK residents and UK citizens, they're perfectly entitled to donate money to uh, a UK political party. Ever since, well, the Tories have always been relatively lax, let's say, about doing any due diligence about their donors. And of course, Ian, some of this money is coming via a different route from people whose own origins aren't from Russia. Yeah. Um, just this week, the New York Times released a story um, claiming that uh, Ehud had acted as a straw donor uh, for a close family member who's based in, uh, in Russia. And this is Ehud Shelleg, who is was at one point the treasurer of the Conservative Party. Yeah, Ehud Shelig's a uh, art dealer by profession um, and was Conservative Party treasurer, I think, for about four or five years um, until uh, 2018. 
And his term as Tory party treasurer was quite controversial due to the close bonds that he formed with various Russian donors to the Conservative Party. So I suppose um, what one might say as a sort of counterpoint to that is, OK, sure, but at the end of the day, this money didn't do anything. You know, when, when Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, Britain was, if I can use the, uh, the, the words of the prime minister, a world leader in providing support to, to the Ukrainians. Now, is, is that a fair defence? Well, it's, it's an odd one. I think, um, uh, obviously, militarily, um, Britain's been very supportive of Ukraine, and we've been providing intelligence um, to the Ukrainians. What we haven't been doing is messing with the money uh, to the extent that we should have. I mean, London probably contains several tens of billions of pounds worth of um, Russian-controlled assets. Um, there is an awful lot of money which has come from Moscow over the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, the, the Tories have benefited from that. They've obviously received donations and so forth, but also the City of London has as well. Uh, there's an industry of uh, facilitators uh, based in London, lawyers, accountants, uh, PR people, and bankers who are able to uh, help keep that money safe and uh, help keep that money untaxed in various tax havens. Um, And that has been a major source of income for a large professional cadre uh, for many years. And when it comes to sanctioning and uh, getting tough on oligarchs, we seem to be following a few steps behind. Our prime concern seems to be controlling the uh, stability of asset prices and so forth. We've been sort of announcing what we are going to do and then allowing people 30 days, 60 days, 90 days grace to get their affairs in order before legislation changes or sanction lists and things like that have been updated. When it's come to who to target for sanctions, we seem to have been copying and pasting uh, the names uh, which have been um, sanctioned already by other jurisdictions such as the US or the European Union. So it's been a bit of a patchwork. Uh, What we really lack in this country, though, is effective financial enforcement. Um, You know, I think our intelligence services have been focused on predominantly Islamic terrorism for much of the last 20 years and have taken their eye off the ball when it's come to counterintelligence and Russian um, activities within the UK. They do not seem to have a very uh, good or effective financial intelligence uh, operation. There's no sort of equivalent to the American FinCEN or OFAC, which is the uh, Department of Treasury's uh, financial intelligence network and their Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is the sanctioning body in the US. The FCA, uh, the SFO, Companies House, and the other regulators who are meant to look into things like uh, money laundering um, and financial crime have shied away from large-scale prosecutions or complex cases. They are under-resourced, and I think that shows in the fact that we haven't been as proactive or as aggressive as some other countries have been when it's come to coming to sanctioning, because effectively, we don't know who owns what or where the money is. Yeah. Now, part of this is, of course, uh, the way in which uh, Britain's overseas territories are an essential element of uh, the way in which uh, Russian, both state interests in terms of state-owned businesses, but also uh, senior businessmen very close to Putin 
uh, like to manage their mm. money. Can you say a bit about that? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, the UK is notorious for having a, a string of uh, tax havens, these uh, sunny places for shady people, as they're known. Um, yeah. uh, you don't know who are the beneficial owners of companies or limited partnerships based in those jurisdictions. They don't have to file tax returns. They don't have to file accounts in many cases. There are um, obviously a large number of um, British-based consultants, uh, entrepreneurs, business people, who are very experienced in setting up offshore structures. And really, this anonymizes the source of wealth. It anonymizes the, um, the ownership. Uh, you know, most of these super yachts which are uh, being sanctioned are controlled by mysterious companies based in the BVI or the Isle of Man, where it's not clear who the beneficial owners of them actually are. Um, so it's been a real, I'd say, danger, I think, to, to Western governments now because the the scale of wealth held in these tax uh, havens, I think the BVI is uh, apparently meant to control something like $4 trillion worth of assets around the world on its own, you know? So, right. uh, you know, the, the, the scale of the capital which is held within these uh, dark jurisdictions um, I think is now becoming a, a, an existential threat to, to Western countries. You know, the, the Russians are um, very keen on ensuring that these uh, financial centres stay open to them. And they are very keen on ensuring that they uh, remain in secrecy jurisdictions and that they uh, remain as a, an outlet for their wealth um, and a way for them to hide their assets and obfuscate the sources of funds which then work their way back into, into Western economies. Yeah. So taking this back to the Ukraine conflict, are there Russian businesses, state-owned businesses, that are of material importance to that conflict, whether it's because they finance the activities of the Russian government or because they actually supply materials to Russia's war machine that are making use of Western financial engineering and, and particularly the, the, the financial engineering systems that we have here in the UK? Well, yes. I mean, the city of London is one of the world's largest financial centres. Um, so you, you've seen large Russian companies um, come and f- try and float or float on the uh, London Stock Exchange, such as uh, Rossal and Enic, which is the uh, Eurasian National and, uh, Resources Corporation. Um, you've also seen the Russian government and its closely associated companies, such as Gazprom, issue bonds uh, on the London market. And in fact, even a Gazprom bond flotation took place shortly after the Skirpal poisoning. Uh, so we've kept ourselves, let's say, uh, open for business. So that being the case, uh, has it all changed now? Are we now uh, looking back with some regret at this period of our history? Or is it just now that this is being buried in ways that are much harder for people to see? So we're, we're still allowing this dark money to access our financial networks, but uh, it's just happening in in much better hidden ways. Yes, I think um, what you're seeing at the moment is, you know, certain assets, the obvious ones, you know, Chelsea Football Club and so forth will be, uh, will grab a lot of headlines and a lot of attention. But at the same time, it's relatively easy to restructure your offshore holdings um, and to obfuscate you know, the ownership of assets within the UK. And I imagine that there's some very highly paid lawyers and accountants who are busily engaged in um, squirreling away various assets, various wealth 
into other jurisdictions where they don't think it will be um, sanctioned, or at least if if they themselves are sanctioned, where they uh, will still be able to access a proportion of their wealth. Um, I think the UK is very late to the game of this. I don't think we have the uh, governmental will, and I don't think we have the uh, resources, frankly, within our uh, institutions to be able to take on this kind of problem. There are a lot of vested interests who have benefited from um, Russian wealth coming into the UK over the last 20 years. I also think that the UK has a lot of people who will feel no doubt compromised to some extent by their previous engagement with Russians who are now facing sanctions or their involvement with um, Russian state-owned businesses and companies. There are a number of lobbyists, for example, who represent uh, things like Rosatom, the uh, Russian state-owned nuclear company. There are a number of ministers, uh, even up to Boris Johnson himself, with his relationship with the Lebedevs, for example, who have questionable relationships or questionable uh, issues, let's say, with their past engagement with various uh, Russian oligarchs and with Russian businesses. Um, so I think it is going to be a difficult one for the uh, UK government to manage. I think there'll be increasing pressure put on the UK government by some of the EU and US to increase the um, level of scrutiny that we put on financial transactions within this country. I think there'll be increasing pressure politically put on the UK government to get tougher with our sanctioning regime. And I think there'll be increasing pressure to start reforming or managing better uh, the risks which are posed by our offshore financial jurisdictions, our tax havens. Ian, those sound like um, some really important objectives and ones that we can fervently hope uh, that progress is made on. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us and helping us to understand what is undoubtedly a complicated but fascinating story. My pleasure. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.